0: Hello and welcome to Teach the Children the Truth, Ethnic Studies and Raza Studies in the TK-12 classroom. My name is Marisa Villegas Ramirez and I'm your host. This week in Ethnic Studies history is on a short pause as I take some time to address and digest the insane news coming down from the U.S. Supreme Court. In the last three days of the session, the court has ruled affirmative action in college admissions policies unlawful, determined that businesses have a First Amendment right to discriminate against the LGBTQ plus community and have laughed in the face of students like myself, drowning in student loan debt by rejecting Biden's proposed plan to reduce our loans by 10,000 dollars or $20,000. If this is not a direct message to the people of this country that the alt-right is in charge, then I don't know what is. Maybe the Supreme Court has seen its day. Let's take a look at the purpose the Supreme Court is meant to serve. The Supreme Court plays a very important role in our constitutional system of government. First, as the highest court in the land, it is the court of last resort for those looking for justice. Apparently even the last resort does not always ensure justice as we have seen this past week. Second, due to its power of judicial review, it plays an essential role in ensuring that each branch of government recognizes the limits of its own power. Unless your branch is overrun by alt-right conservatives who are out of control and think the justices are their personal playthings. Third, It protects civil rights and liberties by striking down laws that violate the Constitution. Remember that document that was not actually written for most of us? Yeah, that one. Finally, it sets appropriate limits on democratic government by ensuring that popular majorities cannot pass laws that harm and or take undue advantage of unpopular minorities Oh, boy, did it miss this mark by a few thousand miles. While the Supreme Court was meant to be part of the system of checks and balances, it has clearly gone overboard and is successfully outlining that the intent of this document called the Constitution was never meant to recognize anyone but wealthy, straight, white males. Yeah, I said it. Now, back to part two of being a new first-year teacher isn't easy. The following morning, I awoke feeling immense waves of anxiety, tremendous pride, and exhilaration at the thought of my first student walking through the door in a few short hours. When I arrived at school, I could sense the excitement and anticipation that flooded the halls of the entire place which was bustling with custodians dragging away final bags of garbage and cardboard boxes amidst the petrified looks on the faces of my fellow brand new teachers rushing to the copy room to get those last copies in before the bell rang. The first student to walk through my door, Joanna Morales Fernandez, was accompanied by her mother who proceeded to inform me that her daughter had been recommended for retention by her first grade teacher. I listened patiently as her mother described her daughter's struggles with reading in her first two years of school. And then she asked me what my suggestion was. I had to be honest with her and inform her that I was a brand new teacher and could not tell her the best decision for her daughter. However, I did assure her that if she chose to leave her daughter with me in my second grade class, I would do my absolute best to get her at reading level by the end of the school year. Her mother seemed very satisfied with my response and let her daughter stay in my class. At this time, I had absolutely no idea what I had to do to bring this child to grade level in reading, but I only knew that I had committed to another brown mother. I felt this commitment was a sacred promise to give her daughter a fighting chance at an education. As the minutes passed, more students began arriving outside my classroom anxious mothers and fathers peering through the window, trying to get a glimpse of what their child's next year might look like. Students were supposed to line up outside the classroom door, but as would happen every year, I already had about three or four students and their nervous parents seated inside the classroom, waiting for other students to arrive so we could get on with the day. No pressure, right? In those first years at Stonehurst, we had a system known as Early Bird, Late Bird in which students were grouped into two categories. One being early morning arrivals that would go home early and the other group being late arrivals that would go home later in the afternoon. The purpose of this system was to create a period of about 45 to 50 minutes for two smaller groups so that teachers could focus on teaching more individualized reading skills to our students. This alleviated the issue of overcrowded classrooms and provided students with more small group and one-on-one time with their teachers. I came prepared with a camera that day to snap photographs of my students on their first day of school, as I always have enjoyed photography as a hobby. This became another ritual of mine, one that I would practice year after year, in which I have amassed hundreds of photographs of students on their first days of class some dressed in their uniforms, others dressed in regular street clothes, and some holding their name tags up to simplify identification, as I painstakingly tried to remember all of their names by the end of the first week of school, which often was a great challenge. Some students would roll their eyes, others would shake their heads, but begrudgingly, each would cave in, letting me take their photograph. They never regretted it as they got older and could look at these photos with me and reminisce. Much of that first day and week is pretty foggy in my memory, but one particular student has always stood out. The pencil shaving kid, Jaime Ceballos. As students lost their initial jitters after the first few minutes upon hearing me introduce myself and realizing that I seemed like a nice enough person, I began to pay closer attention to certain students as I had assigned each child a task to provide me with a writing diagnostic so that I could gauge their writing level. I noticed a student in the corner of the room with a small plastic pencil sharpener. He would write for a few minutes, then reach for his little pencil sharpener, allowing all the pencil shavings to fall on the floor until he reached that desired pointy tip. I watched this happen repeatedly. Reminding myself that he wasn't doing this intentionally and probably didn't even think about the mess he was making, he did this for a few days until I asked him to make sure his shavings were moved to an appropriate garbage can. Even though he did not remain my student, all year I continued to find random pencil shavings in his vicinity and this amusing memory became one of many I still hold dear today. There are so many amazing young people that I was honored to work with that first year that stand out in my memory for different reasons. Silvia Rivas and Jose Collazo are two more students I had my first year that have always been etched in my mind. Silvia and Jose were cousins and they were both in my class the same year. So I got to know both of their families very well. Their families were two of the most active families in my class during my first year of teaching. All four parents were in class regularly, volunteered for field trips when work schedules permitted, and attended school events regularly as well. Silvia's mother brought so many art project opportunities to my students that she initiated and supervised herself, which was such a great help to a first year teacher. For our first Dia de los Muertos celebration, which later became an annual event and a very central part of my teaching pedagogy, She assisted me in creating papier-mâché molds of children's faces so that they could be painted in the tradition of a skull, which represented and reminded us all of our own mortality. Sylvia also brought in another art project, creating small chairs out of wooden clothespins that were then painted red for the winter holidays. Children took these decorated gifts home for their parents. I still have my original chair. Well, it's on the mantle at my mom's house. Sylvia's wooden chair activity also inspired a personal art project I created some years later. I took an old wooden chair from the classroom that would be thrown away by custodial services, and I painted it in a southwestern style. I still use this chair as part of my days of the Dead ofrenda as well, along with the many wonderful parents who supported their child's learning environment. I would not have been as effective in my teaching had it not been for our amazing paraprofessionals who are instrumental in pushing into small groups and working one-on-one with students in the classroom every day. Irma Ortiz and Maria Zambrano are two of these wonderful support providers. Their children were also my students during my first three years of teaching. Having these paraprofessionals in my class who were also Stonehurst parents and very connected to the community, was a great help in establishing a strong rapport with families each year. They served as liaisons between our classroom and the larger school community and helped us organize school events and parent groups for various happenings throughout the year. I don't think I could have survived my first year in the classroom without the support of amazing families and paraprofessionals who played an equal role in educating our students at Stonehurst. Almost immediately, students supported one another with translation and understanding instructions when confused. This natural community building process seemed to allow students to use their strengths and abilities to support one another academically and socially. And while the language learners struggled with understanding content in English, they quickly utilized their Spanish and the recognition of Spanish language cognates to build a basic understanding of the language used in the classroom. I encouraged students who were strong in English language arts, math, and science to use their skills and abilities to support those classmates who were still building their skills in developing language and comprehension in English. Ours was a Spanish bilingual classroom, so I regularly utilized my Spanish with students for maintenance purposes and to translate more difficult assignments and aid in comprehending what they were learning. I ensured that all of my students felt comfortable speaking, reading and writing in both languages as I wanted to ensure that they developed mastery of and took pride in their bilingual abilities. The late 1990s saw several anti-immigrant and anti-bilingual propositions placed before voters and I was entering bilingual education at a very troubling time. Ballot measures such as Proposition 227, the Anti-Immigration Bill, And Proposition 209, which targeted affirmative action programs meant to even the playing field in academics and in the workplace for people of color and women, were just the first of a number of flagrantly racist pieces of legislation that attacked the very families I was serving. These attacks made it much more important to build community, pride, and a sense of self-determination in families to support and demand more bilingual services for their children. As a Chicana, I knew the history of the Mexican-American experience in the United States. My mother was a part of the Chicano movement, and when possible, I continued to learn and grow as an activist throughout my public education and my years in college. As a first-year teacher, I had no idea just how political of a statement I was making by becoming a bilingual teacher at this time in U.S. history. And so our nation's current events very much became a foundation for my lesson design process, fusing the present with the past to demonstrate the cyclic and repetitive attack on our people and all people of color in this country and worldwide. I became a social scientist educator from day one and taught basic reading, writing, phonics, grammar, mathematics, science, arts, and even PE all through an ethnic studies lens. I recognized the importance of my students and their families becoming aware of the struggles unfolding around them. A bridge was built between current happenings in the Chicano-Latino and African-American communities because these were the two largest populations we served at Stonehurst. Because I knew the importance of creating unity and connecting struggles, I ensured that I was inclusive in my teaching and demonstrated the importance of working together in the interests of all communities. Although the concept of unity might sound logical and even plausible in a tight knit community as we had at Stonehurst, it was much more challenging than I ever dreamt it would be. The Stonehurst community, which lies in deep East Oakland was historically a black community that saw its peak in the 1960s when a small number of black families moved into a then predominantly white community. The neighboring community surrounding James Madison K through 12 schools was also known at one time as a whites-only exclusive community built for soldiers returning from World War II in the 1950s. As more African-American families migrated to the Bay Area from the South during World War II and then decided to settle here with their families to make a go at it, Black families again spread out into neighborhoods where they had once been turned away in an attempt to desegregate white middle-class neighborhoods that offered their families more opportunity. In the late 1960s, the introduction of drugs into black and brown communities created a shift in the neighborhood, negatively impacting communities of color. What had once been flourishing black neighborhoods had now become war zones for rivaling gangs determined to outdo their competitors. Most neighborhoods in East Oakland at this time were populated by communities of color, primarily black followed by Latino and Asian. The next three decades would see a serious uptick in drug use and gang violence, as East Oakland suffered the state of many other black and brown communities across the US with drugs and gangs being funneled into neighborhoods, effectively paralyzing any possibility of political movements or organizations, such as the Black Panthers and the Brown Berets, whose mission it was to ensure the survival of their people against racism, police brutality, and economic injustice. As we walked into our first year of teaching, the Stonehurst community was very deeply divided and impacted by years of poverty and neglect. Its children, now a great mix of black and brown faces, along with the faces of children from the Pacific Islands and the Middle East, were victims of a never ending cycle. Designing an elementary school curriculum to meet the needs of this very diverse community was indeed a challenge, one that I readily took on to open doors for the children of Oakland, Although I did not grow up in Oakland, I knew enough about the community to be able to connect with families and do my best to meet their needs as an educator and community activist. I definitely came into teaching armed with a lot of the necessary tools to be able to learn how to design culturally relevant curriculum that would motivate and inspire students for decades to come. Working with very few resources at our disposal, my colleagues and I had to become very creative and tap into our past experiences while building connections to those experiences of our students. During those first weeks, I remember asking my students where they were from and learning about their personal journeys, as many were newcomer families that had just arrived in the United States. Most of my students were of Mexican heritage, with a few being born to families that had been here for at least one generation. While in Texas, it was often prevalent to find families that span three or four or more generations born and raised in the United States, more than half of the Latino families here in the Bay Area were immigrants, having migrated within just one generation. Several students had migrated here and had no historical background knowledge about our people and their legacy in the United States over the past 500 years of occupation. In fact, most of my students each year would lack a foundational understanding of the Chicano movement or Mexican American history here in the United States. This inspired me to focus my curriculum design around that important factor. The impact of the Chicano movement was twofold. It created and instilled pride and a demand for self-determination and political power in the generations of Mexican Americans who have called this home for centuries. And it opened doors for indigenous Raza families that would continue to migrate to the United States for generations to come. The Chicano movement created and supported systems and organizations that provided the very services our communities continue to rely on today, such as bilingual education, family support networks, immigration services, community efforts to stem violence and drug use in the community, and a wealth of social and cultural programming, in particular across the Southwest. The Chicano movement spearheaded a demand for our legacy to be recognized and acknowledged at all levels of education. Without these services and programs, there would be nothing available for the more recent wave of immigrants from all across Latin American countries. As an educator, I felt it was imperative that these new generations of young Chicanos needed to become familiar with our story and our cultural and political impact on the United States. To do this, I needed to design learning activities that would first instill this pride in our students concerning their cultural and familial wealth. Next, I needed to provide direct instruction regarding my community experience here in the United States so that they could understand what it was like for someone who lived through what I was teaching them. Lastly, by bridging these two experiences, that of the migrant with that of the generations born on this side of the border, and providing a vision for the future while addressing the needs of our community's current reality It was my hope that my students would value this new knowledge they were receiving and begin to see themselves as an integral part of a community of learners, thinkers, and activists that are guided by their ancestors. As part of my deeper instructional pedagogy, I decided earlier in my career to base my instruction on an indigenous foundation and framework. Beginning with my first year and every year after that, I instilled in my students an understanding and respect for themselves as descendants of the original caretakers of these lands. I ensured that they understood that while our people are a result of European colonization of indigenous and African descended people here in the United States and across the Americas, they also understood the deeper connection between us and our ancestors. While my students were from many different parts of the Americas, most were of Mexican heritage and most likely could trace their ancestry throughout Mexico and the northernmost part of Central America. I also did my best in my teachings to instill in them and develop a genuine curiosity for learning more about their ancestral legacy. A few weeks into my first year of teaching, I decided to begin a practice with my students called Ceremonia. I brought a bundle of white sage with me to work one morning and explained to my students its purpose and what it was used for by indigenous communities across the Southwest. At first, my students thought it was marijuana and they began to laugh and joke around about what they knew of this at the time. I reassured them that it was no such thing and that sage was not any legal substance. I explained the plant and how many indigenous communities use dried sage for ceremonial purposes. I talked about its medicinal purposes and how some people use it for tea and cooking. I explained that sage has been around for centuries and that our indigenous ancestors have always known about the herbs healing properties. I passed the bundle around as we sat in a circle on the rug in our classroom and watched as students looked at it, touched it gently, and sniffed its potent smell. I described how our elders believe that it opens up a sacred space for the ancestors to stop time to allow for ceremony to happen so that we can remain connected to the old ways that have either been forgotten or beaten out of us. Each student listened intently and then asked if we were going to smoke it. I responded by shaking my head and laughing, and then I asked them to form a line so we could go outside and have our first ceremonia. Watching a group of 20 young brown faces excitedly jump off the rug and form a line at the door of your classroom in your first year of teaching is an extraordinary feeling. As we walked toward the school's front door, I could hear my students chattering in the hallway, wondering what in the world was about to happen. We exited the school's front door and proceeded to form a circle around the flagpole on the concrete in front of the school. We all sat on the ground together as students curiously peered at the bundle. I had also brought out an abalone shell, a small blanket and a lighter. I asked students to listen quietly as I began our first ceremony by thanking them for being willing to learn something new, even if it seemed very strange. I reassured them that I would never do anything harmful or dangerous. I only wanted them to have this experience because I felt that it was important for them to learn about the ways of the indigenous people of these lands, those traditions which had been stolen from them because of colonization. Once all the children formed a circle, I began speaking some words to them As to the purpose of our ceremony, I explained that centuries ago, before European colonization, their ancestors had other beliefs and traditions, and that the circle was the heart of the indigenous world. I explained how many things work in a circle, also known as a cycle, in which one step leads to another and another, and eventually comes back to the first step, creating a process that indigenous communities depend upon for different aspects of living their lives. The circle that we were in was similar to many of the circles their indigenous ancestors created to bring the community together, to celebrate, mourn, or to solve a problem. Sometimes these circles were designed to teach new information, the kind of circle we were making today. I was teaching them information that may have been lost by previous generations in their family, but this was an opportunity to reconnect with some of this knowledge. As I spoke, I carefully lit the sage and immediately the pungent smoke began to swirl around me as if it were a living being, a participant in this very event. My students were fascinated with the smoke and while some of them wrinkled their noses and put their hands to their faces as a sign of distaste, other students gladly welcomed the smoky smell and said that it was a beautiful scent that they liked. I continued to explain that many of their ancient ancestors had used sage at one time or another for different reasons, but that this was not a practice that had died out and was still used by indigenous people all over the Southwest and Mexico. The white sage I have always used in my ceremony with students is grown in Southern California, the only place on earth where white sage will actually grow naturally. This particular bundle and most of the other bundles I use even today are grown and harvested in my compadre Ruben's backyard. This sage has been growing there for decades, and as it continues to grow, Ruben will harvest it, dry it out, and bring it up north whenever he comes to visit to provide us with sage for our personal or ceremonial use. I was excited to be able to share something so special with my students and to be able to provide them with just one small yet meaningful example of our own indigenous practices outside of the classroom. I asked students if they would like me to pass the sage around and almost all said yes. Whenever I introduce this to students, I always allow them to opt out if they choose not to be in the circle or respectfully pass on holding the sage as it approaches them if they decide to be in the circle. Even students who initially say they don't want to hold the sage will frequently take it when it comes to them because they see nothing bad happening to their friends or classmates, I tell students to gently blow on the lit areas so the bundle will not die out as it passes around the circle. I often introduce ceremonia in October to commemorate those ancestors who fell to colonization or in November to commemorate our ancestors for days of the dead. Both are opportunities to teach students about respect and reverence for other people's traditions and cultural practices and create their own personal methods of acknowledging the cycle of life and paying respect to their elders when they pass on to the other side. Many students will connect this to their spiritual practices, which is okay. It helps them make a personal connection, even if it makes more sense to them to interpret it the way they prefer. I want to affirm that the tradition I teach is not in any way to promote religious practice in school but simply to teach students about the history of indigenous spirituality in the Americas from a historical and social sciences perspective. Since it is also a living part of my own practice as a descendant of my indigenous ancestors, I can provide my students with a personal look into how those practices have evolved post-colonization. These are just some examples of my pedagogical practices in the classroom that create a community foundation grounded in the centering of our ancestral traditions and history. As I relive the stories and consider their impact on past students, I also plan for future classes I will teach and new groups of students I will impact with this sacred knowledge. I want to thank you all for spending some more time with me this week. I look forward to next week's episode where I will hopefully be bringing another educator interview. I look forward to your suggestions thoughts and opinions about what we discuss and how we might improve the podcast. I hope that for those who are educators and are able to enjoy a little bit of the summer break that you're finding time to rest, rejuvenate, and be with your loved ones. Until next week, In Lak'ech.